I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to John chapter... I'm sorry. I'm going to turn to John chapter 6. You turn to Exodus chapter 16. All right? Turn to Exodus chapter 16. And as soon as you get there, I'm going to give you just a second or two. Try to glance through the chapter and get a picture of what the chapter is about. But if you can, read the first nine verses or so. In Exodus chapter 16, I'm going to give you a minute to do that. Dead air is not a good thing for radio, but it's okay in church. So, Exodus chapter 16, just glance through verses 1 through 9. I'm in John chapter 6, and I'm going to just note some characteristics that I see on display in my story in John chapter 6, and you see if you see the same characteristics in Exodus 16. So in my passage, I see some Israelites that are hungry. Do you see that in Exodus 16? I see some Israelites that are also grumbling. Do you see that in Exodus 16? My account comes... uh, the day after Jesus fed the 5,000. And, um, and they wanted more food. They came, they, they hunted him down, they found him the next day, and they're asking for food, but they're not being very polite. In fact, it says in verse 41 of my passage that the Jews grumbled about him. So we both see hungry Israelites and grumbling Jews. And, and in those two characteristics, I see in my passage, perhaps you see it in yours as well, um, I see them being very demanding of their leader who they don't quite treat like their leader. Do you see that, how they treat Mo? They're coming to him, they're kind of demeaning to him. And I see the same thing in my passage with Jesus. They're being very demanding. They're like, hey, you fed 5,000 people yesterday. We want food now. They're treating him like a leader, but they don't, they don't act like he's their leader. They, they don't give him credit with their mouth that he's their leader. They kind of look down upon him, and yet they're de- making demands of him. Maybe you see that in your passage as well. In my passage, I see God providing bread to the hungry, grumbling Israelites. And you see that in your passage as well. In my passage, I see it kind of twice over, in fact. He, he gives them bread physically on the first day at the beginning of my chapter. And then on the second day, though they're demanding the same kind of bread yesterday, he's trying to turn their attention to a second kind of bread that is being provided. Perhaps there's more there, and you can discuss that later, or analyze that in your own studies later, but the similarities of what the Jews were experiencing in John chapter 6 were not lost on Jesus' audience. They, As they were living out John chapter 6, their minds were going back to Exodus chapter 16 as well. In fact, um, they saw themselves as the Israelites back in Exodus 16, but they saw themselves as a better version of the Israelites. And we we do that too, don't we? We know that we need to go back to the Old Testament and see examples in the Israelites' lives and what we can learn about sin. But we're always harder on the Israelites than we are on ourselves, aren't we? 
We're, we never see ourselves as quite adulterous as the Israelites. And the, the, the Israelites in, in John chapter 6 are doing the same thing. And they, they're living out John chapter 6, and they're bringing their attention back to Exodus 16. They're saying, hey, we're like the Israelites back there. And that bread that you produce, that's like the bread that Moses produced. And so, Jesus, you're kind of like Moses here, and we would like some more bread. But Jesus needs to clarify. They were close, but they missed the mark. Staying where you are, just listen to these words. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So you're coming after me not because you have hungry spirits. You're coming after me because you have hungry bellies. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. He goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. So there he's correcting them. He's saying, you see yourselves as the Israelites, and that's right, but you see me as Moses giving you bread. But Moses didn't give you the bread in Exodus 16. God gave you the bread. And God is still the one giving bread now, but Jesus says, I'm that bread. God is giving me to you. He says, um, for, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have not seen Me and you do not believe. So there He's making it very clear. You guys are close. But I am the bread. I'm the manna. Not Moses. So let's go back. I'm going to join you now in Exodus chapter 16. Um, and let's, let's just kind of walk ourselves through this passage. And as we do, let's keep our eyes peeled. Let's see Jesus, just like Jesus wanted the Jews in John chapter 6 to see Him for who He was. So let's walk through this together. Let's see Jesus and let's, let's learn what the Israelites were missing out on. Both Israelites in Exodus 6 and, or Exodus 16 and John 16. John 6. Let's try to learn what they missed. And uh, I've got two kids now that are in driving age, and so I've, I've come to understand that there's two different kind of definitions of the word learn. If you can remember all the way back to when you got your driver's license, really there's two different tests to take, isn't there? There's the written test that you take at the BMV, and you have to pass that. If you can't pass that, you don't get your license. But if you pass it, they still don't give you a license. You've got to pass the driving test, don't you? One of them is head knowledge, book knowledge on paper. The other one is, can you actually get out and execute this? And I'm not worried about the first kind of test. I think we usually have that down. As Christians, we have the head knowledge. We need to be worrying about that second kind of test. Having this head knowledge, can I go out and actually execute this in my life? That's where knowledge becomes wisdom. So that's what we're aiming for this morning. Not to learn anything new and novel that we haven't seen before, but to actually respond with obedience. So let's look at Exodus chapter 16. And I'm just going to walk through it and um, draw out thoughts as I see them. First of all, 
Verse 1 says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Remember last week we saw that that wasn't, has no relationship to the word sin. It's just a location. Which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So here we see their spiritual high of God delivering them out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage, and leading them into the promised land. That spiritual high only lasted two and a half months. Coincidentally, their spiritual high coincided precisely with exactly how long their food lasted. As soon as their bellies become, began to grumble, they began to grumble. And what a, what a good reminder that you know, our, our spiritual um, obedience is so directly tied so often to just the most menial things in life. How full is my belly? How much sleep did I get the night before? We have to guard ourselves because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak and their flesh was weak. Look at verse 3. It says, The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. When I, when I look in the Old Testament, I just think it's such a clear picture of Egypt symbolizing the old way of life that we were delivered from. Egypt symbolizes all the sin that we had in our life. Egypt is just a picture of who we were before we were born again and come to faith and knowledge in Christ. And here we see that on display. And they were wishing, well, you've delivered us, but now we're going to die out here. If you're going to kill us anyway, I wish you had killed us back when we had full bellies and we had all the bread that we wanted and all the meat that we wanted. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? I think that's interesting. That tells me that we were on target last week when we were talking about grumbling, how oftentimes we know we're grumbling when we are, when we are expressing complaints to someone that can't do anything about the situation at all. And that's exactly what Moses says. He says, you're grumbling, but what, what can we do? You're grumbling uh, to us, but we can't do anything for you. He says, for what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling when you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And there again, we see that's just a good reminder. When we're grumbling, doesn't matter who we are grumbling to, we're grumbling against the Lord. How did you do this last week on grumbling? I realized I grumble a lot more than I thought. The, the, the sermon last week put it on the front burner in my mind. 
And uh, I realize I, I am a grumbler. And uh, that's something the Lord is working on in my life. And we always have a rationalization. But I, we grumble sometimes. I know I do. The Lord's, the Lord's working on my life in that. And this passage helps me to see it. Look at verse 9. 9 through, nine through 12, as we're making our way here and, and kind of getting to the point where we can analyze the manna. Verses 9 through 12 is really a, a very incredible template uh, for us when God's children are unexpectedly dissatisfied. Verses 9 through 12 kind of gives us a template of what to expect and what we should do. Oftentimes we're dissatisfied, unexpectedly dissatisfied, when we already ha- we have expectations on something that we shouldn't in the first place. But there are times in life when we are unexpectedly dissatisfied. Some troubles hit us. We're, we're in a valley. I, I look at uh, the Hawkins who are with us this morning, and I see a couple of God's children who are coming out of a long valley. And that was unexpected. You guys weren't expecting that, were you? But I would imagine, and from talking to them already, I know that they can bear witness to what we see in verses 9 through 12 of a godly template of how we should behave when we are going into dark times. Let me just read it real quick and then I'll unpack that. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now grumbling aside, I see a pattern here. When we get into that dark valley, when we are unexpectedly dissatisfied with what the Lord has to give us, God says, come near before me. Draw near to God. It helps us to recognize and see, oh man, I was getting satisfaction in things that won't last. Only God lasts. Draw near. And so in those times of darkness, we draw near. And when we draw near, I notice in verse 10 it says, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And when we peer into those wilderness times in our life, when, hey man, I... I've been stripped of the things that I've been relying on unexpectedly. I am not find myself in a wilderness. But when we look, having drawn near to God, we see God's glory in a way that we don't notice when our bellies are full. And notice what God says. In those times, when you draw near to me and I make my glory known to you, he says in verse 12, I have heard. And that's just a repeated theme throughout the Psalms that... Though others may not hear, God hears you. And then look what's the result. You shall eat, you shall be filled, and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And that know is that second kind of testing. That's the practical driver's test out on the road. You're going to know it in the way that you execute it. Not just know it in your head, but you're going to know it in your life. And so... I just, I just see a little pattern there for us. I've marked my Bible up. I, I know where to go now. When I'm unexpectedly 
dissatisfied, I'm going to come here and try to remind myself, try to preach to myself that I need to draw near to God, look for His glory, know that He hears me, and then wait to be filled and to eat and to know that He is God. Um, now, let's get to the manna. Verse 13. First of all, it says, In the evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, the dew lay around the camp. So, based on everything that, that we see from here all the way through, through numbers, it seems to me that the manna was reappearing every single morning, even from what we read what God was saying in the previous verses here, verse 4. But it seems like the quail was just a special one-time thing this day. Like, okay, you're complaining. You want some meat? I'm going to give you meat tonight. Then I'm going to give you bread tomorrow. And it's going to last. And he's going to give bread daily after that. But I don't, I don't think the quail was repeating. And I think that becomes clear when we, we turn again to Numbers chapter 11 here shortly. But he still gave them meat for the night. Because they longed for it. Uh, I'm reminded of Matthew Henry's quote, God gives us good things of this life, not only for necessity, but for delight, that we might not only serve Him, but serve Him cheerfully. God is so good. He doesn't just give us what we need. Sometimes He gives us what we don't need, but He knows that we'll enjoy. I think that's what was happening here with the quail. But we see the manna. Verse 14, And when the dew had gone up, there was... On the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people saw it, they said to another, one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it up, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take one, you shall take an omer, which is, from what I understand, two quarts, so like think of a half a gallon of milk. You should take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. So the, the dew would come down, and then as the sun evaporated the dew, there was this film left behind that they could gather up, and they would get about two quarts of it per person. And we know from later on in the passage that if they waited too long, even the manna itself would melt. It just had a had a, a higher melting point than the dew, but it would melt and it would disappear in the noon sun. Um, we also know uh, from Numbers chapter 11 that they would take this and they would grind it, they would beat it into cakes, they would boil it like you would a um, what do you call it a not a donut? What's the what a bagel? There you go, and uh, so you would boil it. And they would maybe bake it as well. Um, we know from verse uh, 31 in this chapter, it says, Now the house of God called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, a fine small seed. It was white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And so this is kind of like the very first McGriddle sandwich, minus the sausage, of course, and the egg. It was! Have you ever had the McGriddle sandwich? That stuff is magic. It's close. It's close to manna. I know it. They've got the they've got the honey and the molasses suspended in the bread somehow, and that's what they have here. Um, let's see what else. Oh, and also notice that it's it's supernatural, as we see later on here. That on Fridays to prepare for the Sabbath, they would they would take twice as much 
so they wouldn't have to gather on Saturday. But if anyone thought they'd have the bright ideas, oh, I'm going to go out on Monday and work really hard and save up all week, of course, the very next day, it was already rotten and it had worms in it. So it was, it was very supernatural. There's no explanation for this, though there are some natural explanations that come close to this, um, but it doesn't answer all that we see here. And so it was a supernatural thing. Oh, you got ahead of me. Jeannie, I'm sorry, you got ahead of me. Um, let's let's go to let's go to the overhead now. Uh, I should have known because I saw people writing down all of a sudden. One, you know what? I think maybe I'm going to just stop but doing the overhead and let you take your own notes, and we'll see how far you get. Maybe it, that's better. I would like some feedback on that. Actually, it would be helpful. But let's look at both the manna and Jesus, and let's let's see the similarities. First of all, both the manna and Jesus, as Jesus makes clear in John chapter six. And as Jeannie has already showed us, sent from heaven to save. The man was sent down from heaven to save a dying people. Without the manna, their stores had already run out. Without the manna, they would be dead. And so we, we need to learn from this that, listen, we are not savvy enough to spiritually survive without Jesus. God sent Jesus to save a dying people. Without Him, we are dying. The second similarity between both manna and Jesus. Inexplicably, this manna is supernatural and yet undeniably practical. And so too was Jesus. Undeniably, Jesus was a supernatural. He died. He rose again. He awaits in heaven. He will return one day. But this isn't just... This has real world effects in our lives. We need Jesus to get through tomorrow. So even though it's a supernatural thing that we believe in, it has practical, real world, necessary to survival implications in our life today. In both Jesus and the manna, we see that they replace the holdover provisions from our former way of life when we lived in bondage. We had provisions when we walked in sin before we came to Christ. We had things that brought us temporary satisfaction and filled that empty hole in our stomach for a while. But then when we came to Jesus, we realized He completely replaces everything I thought I needed. Another similarity, um, Jesus is always exactly as much as we need when we need it. Jesus is always exactly as much as we need when we need it. Look at verse 17. It says, And the people of Israel did so, and they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it out with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. I don't know. To me, I just, I just think of Jesus when he was talking to his disciples, and he said, all you need is just the faith of a mustard seed. The way I've had that explained to me is, it doesn't matter if you have a ton of faith or a little faith, if you have faith. If you were falling down a cliff, as it was explained to me, and all you saw was one little root sticking out the edge of that cliff, and as you're falling down, you know you're going to die unless you can grab hold of that root. You're going to put your faith in that root. And it doesn't matter if you're 90% sure if that root is going to hold you, if you're 100% sure if that root's going to hold you, or if you're 10% sure that root's going to hold you, if you reach out and grab it, it'll hold you. 
And, and that's how I've heard explained, if you only have faith as a mustard seed, so you either have it or you don't. And, I, and, and that's kind of the picture I see here where those that gathered little, they had enough. If they gathered too much, they had just enough. And um, Jesus is enough. Always enough. Always exactly what we need when we need it. And another final similarity is neither could be stored up for later. It couldn't be stored up for later. Um, as we... As I've said before, our, our faith needs to be in the present tense. Old faith expires. Uh, we need to be expressing and exercising our faith constantly, day to day to day. And so neither could be stored up for later. We see that in um, in the remaining of the chapter here, We're running out of time. But if they stored up too much, it would rot. And if you're relying on some expression of faith that you, you exercised when you were a child, you know, when you get to heaven and you stand before the curly, pearly gates, Jesus is not going to say, okay, tell me about that time that you said that prayer. He's not going to do that. He's going to look and he's going to see the present condition of your heart. And we cannot be thinking about our faith as something that we did one time we need to think of it as this is the air I breathe. This is the bread I eat. This is my daily provision. It's faith in Christ. And what other connections or similarities might you think of? Uh, and also as Jesus did in John chapter 6, Jesus did a contrast. He said, hey, the manna was like this, but I'm different in this way. So maybe that's something you can do later with your small group or with your family is examine the similarities and the differences between Jesus and the manna. But let's go to one more passage before we go to communion. Let's go to one more passage because the lesson of manna isn't over yet. Um, and so turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. We've got 15 more minutes here. We won't use all of it. But turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. We've looked at the manna and Jesus. Now let's look at the quail and our sin. So again, that quail only was served once. And the manna continued. But in chapter 11 of Numbers, we see a repeat. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them. And that wasn't a figurative fire. It says and it actually consumed the outlaying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord. And the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah. Because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So again we see how serious the sin of grumbling and complaining is. Verse 4, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel who also wept again said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And how sad. Remember, Egypt is symbolic of, of our way of life before we found Christ. Egypt is, is symbolic of all that time that we spent 
finding our satisfaction in sin. And here we see them say, oh, that we had the meat to eat back in Egypt. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Did it cost you nothing, Israel? I seem to remember that you were in bondage. I seem to remember that you were being forced to make bricks and then even make bricks without straw. I seem to remember that you were forced to cast your firstborn sons into the Nile River and it cost you nothing, that bread. But don't we do that? We do the same thing. We look back at the sin in our life. We remember it. And in our moments of weakness, we think, oh, that was good. I remember that we remember that short, temporary satisfaction and we forget the death that is dealt to us when we sin. They were craving the sin that killed them and despising the divine provision that daily sustained them. That's the first thing I want you to note about this connection with quail and our sin. Let me say it again. We'll put it up on the screen for you. They were craving the sin that killed them. And they were despising the divine provision that daily sustained them. They hated life. They were craving death. And when we choose sin, we are doing the exact same thing. And I would say, if not in the moment of temptation, at least in the cold light of post-sin sobriety, you need to be real with yourself about the nature of your sin. And express, even out loud, even if it's just to yourself, and let, just preach to yourself and say, if I were to choose this sin, or if you've already failed, by choosing that sin, I have chosen to pursue that which will lead to spiritual death, and at the same time, I'm despising this provision that God has given me to eternally satisfy me. I think sin has even more power in our life when it remains unspoken. We might say a quick confession and then move on and forget it forever. Declare what you've done. Be clear with yourself and sometimes with others about the nature of your sin. So that's what's happening in verses 4 through 6. And real quick, look at verses 10 through 15. Moses heard the people weeping through their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt with your servant, why have you not found favor? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom and nurse as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat and give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, God, just kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, if you love me at all, Lord, just kill me so that I might not see my own wretchedness. So here we see the wheels are really coming off this thing. Moses is pleading for suicide. The people are all grumbling. The outer layers of the camp have already been consumed by fire. Things are not going well. Now, jog ahead. and we see in verses 16 through 16 and 17 that God says, okay, listen, Moses, I'm going to give you some elders to get around you. If you have children down in, in, in kids, by the way, that's the passage you're studying this morning. It'd be worth talking to them about that. But for our sake, we're going to skip ahead and look at verse 18. God says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. 
and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the heart hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not just eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? So God says, Alright, you want meat? You're going to get meat. You're going to get so much meat, you're going to be sick of it. And this is a principle that I see repeated, and I want you to keep your eyes out for it, but sometimes God chooses to discipline His children by giving them that which they most ardently desire. Sometimes God chooses to discipline His children by giving them that which they most ardently desire. Uh, because sometimes, um, only by experiencing the full effect of our sins do we come to understand why God prohibits it. We, we also see this in Israel when they long for a king. God says, you don't, get, you don't want to be like the other nations. I am your king. You don't, don't be like them. I've given you a prophet. We're going to be different. Oh, they wanted a king so bad, and they bleated to God for a king. And God says, okay, in order to teach you a lesson, I'll give you a king. And he's going to take your daughters as concubines, and he's going to tax you. You want a king? You got it. And we see the exact same thing here. You want meat? All right, you'll get it. Sometimes God disciplines us, chastises us by giving us that which we most ardently desire. So then in verses 31 through 35, we see that God did what was thought to be impossible. He sends them so much quail, it actually becomes a plague. They vomit. Many of them die. And we, and we, we learn... We cannot long for that sin that we were rescued from. We cannot despise that which God uses to rescue us. And so, may we be among those that trust, obey, and live, rather than those that doubt, complain, and then die from their sins. This is what I see in the lesson of Jesus and the manna and the quail and our sin. What better way for us to confess the reality of these passages than, than by partaking in communion together? I want to ask you to get your communion cups up and just hang on to those. We're going to tie all this together. What, what better way to confess the truths of these passages and to commit to expressing them in our lives, these truths that the manna is Jesus that's come down from heaven and on Him we depend daily the truth that at a heart level we need to reject that which we were in bondage to. The truth that, that we cannot live off of old faith that has to be present and continual in our life. What better way to express that than by taking communion? And as you hold that cup, and I want you to spend some time to reflect on what we're about to do, I'm going to read again from John chapter 6 when Jesus was teaching uh, the complaining Israelites about the manna. But let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Because, um, and if you, if you don't have uh, your communion, we've got John's right here, and he'd be happy to give you one. But pray with me. Lord, we're about to do this sacred ritual. 
And we ask that you would engage our hearts and our minds and our spirits and that which we're, in that which we are going to consume. Lord, that this would not just be a physical ritual, but that this would be spiritual. I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to engage with this in a way that maybe we haven't in a long time. And Lord, I pray that we would guard ourselves and examine ourselves, that we would not partake in an unworthy manner, that we would not express physically that which is not true in our lives spiritually. And yet, Lord, we know that You're a God of grace and none of us are perfect. And and so by consuming the bread and the juice, we're again expressing our faith in You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you hold that bread and that juice in your hand, I, I, I just want to read the words from Jesus. Again, in John chapter 6, He says, Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. And that's what we're doing. Feeding on his flesh, symbolically. Drinking his blood, spiritually. We know, what does he mean by feed and drink? Listen again. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. This is almost word for word what he said just a paragraph earlier. But he changed the word feed and drink. Listen to what he says here. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. So this isn't about eating and drinking. This is about looking. and It's about believing. It's about coming. It's about consuming spiritually that which Jesus and only Jesus provides. He says, For my flesh is true food, And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, that is, whoever looks, whoever believes, whoever comes to me, says, whoever abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so with this physical bread and juice, we look upon the spiritual body and blood of Christ. And by consuming these elements, we are coming to Jesus anew. And we are believing in Him afresh. And by this, we confess both our abiding in Him and His abiding in us. So let's prayerfully prepare our spirits with another confession. Let's stand. We're going to begin singing the song, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. And as we do it, maybe you sing, maybe you pray, maybe you just meditate and reflect on the words that we sing, the words that we read, or just the elements in your hand. Then we'll stop in the middle of the song and we'll consume these elements together.